Go ahead, if you would, if you got your copy of God's Word, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2. So, in my study and preparation, i got to be honest, the Old Testament's been um, kicking my tail a little bit. Uh, and by that, I mean I keep writing sermons that are either going to be needed to split into two parts or keep you here for an hour. Uh, and so... Um, this is another one of those already. We're already only in chapter 2, and this I think is the third time we'll have a sermon that's going to be needed to be split in two parts. And when you do that, you sacrifice one thing or the other. And one of the things you sacrifice if you split the sermon into two is prolonging the time you are going to be in the book, which you know is not really a problem for your pastor. And the other thing you sacrifice if you preach for an hour is the temptation to um, have the people be a little bit too overwhelmed with all that's being taught and not being able to take away tangible, practical application. And so I'm, I'm leaning towards, I, I want to make sure you're getting what we're saying um, as opposed to moving through the book as quickly as we might. And so this will be uh, a sermon that really will be split into two. And the title is Civil War Within the Household of God. And let me mind, uh, remind you, I wrote this uh, really last week. And so this is not a response to anything. God's just that good and providential that he allows for his word to speak to us right where we're at, uh, wherever we're at. And so let me remind you that. Now, before I ask you to stand and read God's word, I do have another warning, and that is this is a very, very long chapter, and we're going to read the entirety of it. And so if you are willing and able in the midst of that to stand for the reading of God's word, let me invite you to do so now as we read 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 through the rest of it. It says this, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Anaham the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, and every man with his household. And so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. And so David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strengthened and be valiant for your master Saul is dead and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. 
So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. And so they arose and went over by number 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword and his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, the place was called the field of sharp swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of the Lord. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Asahel pursued Abner, and in going he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, stood still. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amah, which is before Gaiha, by the road of the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit, and took their stand on top of a hill. And then Abner called out to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were, there were missing of David's servants, 19 men in Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. Then they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We, we've gathered this morning, Lord willing, to be addressed by your word. We are a people whose lives have been set apart to live by your word. We desperately need it, knowing we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We come, Father, desiring to come under your word more and more as your spirit reigns over us, impressing that word upon our hearts, renewing our minds, and conforming us more and more into the image of your Son. So, Father, we ask for your help now. Lord, at the outset, to approach this word with fear and trembling, would you help us to see our own weakness? Lord, would you help us to see our own tendency toward sin, the effects of it individually and corporately? Lord, we ask this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated.
our passage this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 2 presents really a, a prevailing theme of, in the scriptures as a whole. It's one we see often. It's a theme of fratricide, which is the killing of one's brother. By the way, funny anecdote here. I did not know what this was called. I knew it was called something, but I couldn't get the word right. So I Googled the killing of one's own brother and then recognized I left the Google page up. So Xander probably had some really interesting questions when she came to clean my office. Uh, Adam and I are fine. We love each other very much. Uh, no, um, it is. This, this theme really of fratricide is something that appears all throughout the scriptures as early as Genesis, doesn't it? Starting with Cain, killing his brother Abel. We follow that throughout the scriptures. We've got the incident of Jacob and Esau, and though that didn't end with fratricide, it was threatened, certainly. Joseph and his brothers, Moses and Korah, Moses and even Aaron and Miriam, for that matter. There's this constant threat throughout the scriptures of civil war within the household of God. We could go on, but we'll pick up what we find here in 2 Samuel chapter 2, which is the division of Israel into two camps and the lesson we must learn from it. The lesson we must learn is really the main idea for this week and next week. It's simply this. Sin divides us. That's the main idea for this week. It'll be the main idea for next week as well. And it's a main idea throughout the scriptures. Sin divides us. As sin takes root in the hearts of man and the people of God, it does divide us. And yet, God's children are called, they must dwell in unity. That's what we're called to. And so let's take up this lesson as we see it unfold throughout the scriptures and, and see how this is the case. Sin divides us. Really, we'll be looking at the first point this morning and several subpoints under it. And the first heading and point of sin dividing us is it does so in the first sense by leading us away. Sin leads us away. It does so, uh, we might ask, okay, well, if that's the case, and we know that to be a fact, then how does sin exactly lead us away? Well, that's what we'll be examining this morning. I want to start by telling you that sin leads us away from God's place. Sin leads us away from God's place. You see that take place in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8. And this might be another one of those things we just read over, but we really need to understand what it means in the scriptures. Look at verse 8. It says, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. That is, brought him over the Jordan, east of the promised land. See, anytime you read something like that, you can take up the reversal of coming into the promised land. What we might refer to and have referred to as exile. Just as worship will later be relocated when the northern kingdom of Israel divides from the southern kingdom of Judah, when, when they split, worship is relocated to Bethel and Dan. Here, the capital of the promised land is relocated from within the heart of the promised land to east of the Jordan. But, but there's a more significant clue to what's transpiring here in the new capital city of Mahanaim. The word Mahanaim, you want to know what it really means? The translation of Mahanaim is two camps. That's, that's what the word Mahanaim 
means. In fact, it first appears to us in Genesis chapter 32 and 33. There, we're reading about the record of Jacob's return toward the promised land. Remember, after his self-imposed exile for a season. He's returning with his wives and his children. And he knows Esau, his brother, is after him, is coming to meet him. And so he sends servants out ahead of him. And we read in Genesis 32, verses 1 through 2. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahalim. Name Again, meaning two camps. So as we read on, Jacob sent messengers bearing gifts to his brother Esau. And then we read in verses 6 through 9, Then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he also is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Here's what's happening. Jacob is about to be encountered by his brother on his return home, but not just his brother alone, right? His brother's coming with 400 men. That's an overkill for a welcome party, but it's perfect for a war party, right? So Jacob was greatly afraid. And, and what did he do because he was greatly afraid? He divided the camp into two. So that if he attacks one, the other will escape. Now, I, I, really, I don't have much time to go through this and actually exegete this passage for you, but, but I would point out to you that Jacob's initial reaction is motivated by fear. And so the response is he's going to divide the camp into two. He will then turn and cry out to the God of his fathers who answers his prayer, bringing about reconciliation between Jacob and Esau in the end. But for our purposes, we should know that, that it's by no consequence that Abner decides to relocate the capital of the promised land to Mahanaim. That is two camps. Because that's exactly what transpires here. Israel is in essence divided into two camps. And this whole movement from the promised land to east of the Jordan, it's problematic. But, but really, in order to understand why it's problematic, we need a couple of tools as we approach the Scriptures. I love doing this, by the way. One of my favorite things to do is give you tools on how to read the Scriptures. And so I'm going to give you two. These are necessary tools to, to look at when we're reading through a genre of historical narrative like we are in 2 Samuel. Here's the first tool. The first tool is this. The historical narrative rarely offers us moral commentary. It rarely offers us moral commentary. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is, uh, as we're reading along, it's rarely going to say, and Abner sinned when he did X, Y, and Z. That's just not how historical narrative often works. Uh, it offers you the historical narrative, and it invites the reader into the story, forcing you to consider the text, forcing you to, to meditate upon it, and arrive at a conclusion in regards to the virtue of the actions taken. So that's the first tool I want to give you in, in kind of helping us understand this. The second tool is this. Hebrew historical narrative, particularly, relies heavily on wordplay and pictures. 
Hebrew historical narrative relies heavily on wordplay and pictures or, or symbolism, right? We in the West, we tend to collect a lot of facts and then we analyze them based on the facts in order to arrive at conclusions. We think very linearly on how we argue and how we tell a story. We expect people to say what they mean, state it very clearly, and go on ahead and get yourself to the point, right? The Hebrews, however, would hear the wordplay here, and they would glean important truths from things that are written in between the lines, like Mahanaim. See, we just read a town there. It's all we read. Like Napoleon marched on Waterloo, it means nothing to us in the end. But here, the place and its name carries with it a freight of significance and meaning. For instance, crossing the Jordan, heading east, out of the promised land in the scriptures, is rarely a picture of God's people moving toward him. Quite the opposite. Israel has become two camps. One camp is Judah. They are in the promised land with David, the man of God's own choosing as their king. The capital is Hebron. We've already seen the storied significance of that place. The other camp is the rest of Israel with their new capital east of the Jordan in a city whose name tells it all two camps, a divided people. Friends, that's what sin does. This is sin, by the way. See, Abner's a commander like the commander of the nations. You remember last week, and we saw how important it was that David inquired of the Lord. Do you see Abner doing that at all? No, not at all. He's not at all inquiring the Lord. He does not do it. He makes a decision. He does what is right in his own. He weighs his options, sees his choices. And he seizes his opportunity. See, if we're reading a history book, it'd be far more difficult to make conclusions about the morality of Abner's actions. But we're not just reading any historical narrative. We're reading the inspired word of God. This story is part of the whole story. God has communicated how his people are to live. Abner's actions are out of step with God's word. We might rightly refer to that as Sin. Abner's sin leads him away from God's place. And if you're not already familiar with this concept, it's necessary to understand that as we talk about God's place, we're not simply talking about dirt here. We're not talking about national boundaries or geographical location. That place, though it does in our context refer to a place with boundaries, is symbolic or representative of God's relationship with his people. It's symbolic of his nearness to them. This is the place that is in the promised land where God has caused his name to dwell, where he abides with his people. The physical land represents reconciliation and even restoration. It is inseparable from the idea of being near to God. And so David understood in in 1 Samuel that to be driven out of the land was to lose his, as he says in 26, 19, sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go and serve other gods. David understood the significance of moving away from God's place where God has caused his name to dwell. 
Now, this way of, of connecting the nearness of God with a specific physical geographical location has shifted with the coming of Christ, certainly. More specifically, the land pointed towards Christ himself. Christ is the promised dwelling place of God, not Israel. In him we draw near to the only true and living God. But to return to our passage in its context, the movement by Abner to abandon God's place, again, think it's a movement to abandon the nearness of God. But why does he do this? I'm not going to bother to attempt and guess at the man's motivations here. They're probably simple enough, honestly. Pride and power, I would guess. As we come to 2 Samuel, we'll see that that what Abner's done is he's propped up a, a, for himself a puppet king. Ishbosheth has little to no power. Abner's the man who's holding this all together. His move here is really like a military coup with a puppet king than it is demonstrating the unyielding loyalty to the house of Saul. But regardless of his motivation for his sin, it is sin indeed that leads Abner and others away from God's place. And this is a central motif through all of the scriptures. It is sin that has first caused our exile, and it is sin that takes us further still. Friends, sin always leads us away from God's place. It always leads us from the joy of the Lord's presence. As it's been said many times, sin costs us more than we think we're going to pay and takes us further than we want to go. And the further is always in the wrong direction away from God's place. But not only does sin lead us away from God's place, I want you to notice, secondly, sin leads us away from God's people. Sin leads us away from God's people. Look at verses 10 and 11 of the text. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, in order to see this clearly, we need to understand in one sense what we read previously from Romans 9, and that is that not all of Israel is Israel. And friends, that, that's always been the case. We know as it was explicitly stated by Paul in Romans 9, but I, I want us to remember here that God's redemption in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant is physical, typological for those who came to Wednesday night this week, and temporary. As the Lord says through Moses, redeeming Israel from Egypt, it didn't change them. The Lord himself described their condition after they had been redeemed as yet being uncircumcised in heart, stiff-necked, always disobeying the Lord. As the New Testament made clear, it didn't remove the power or guilt of sin. So in Israel, what you have is you, you have God's children and you've got the seed of the serpent coexisting in the household of God. John the Baptist and Jesus both make this point abundantly clear. And if they didn't uh, make it clear for you, then Stephen boldly declares this to the Sanhedrin shortly before he's martyred in Acts chapter 7. Look at what he says. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. That's a great way to lead off a, a sermon, right? You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. See, the point is, we're not looking here at two equal camps in the passage. We need to see that. One camp has been led away from God's place, and that's the same camp that's been led away from God's people. Just as God has a place that represents his presence in the Old Testament, so also God has a people. Or here, if we're thinking more carefully, God has his person. What makes the people God's people is the head of God's own choosing. The head whom they have anointed as their king. This case, it's David being the man after God's own heart. The one God chose. And just as sin leads us away from God's place, sin always leads us away from God's person. The sin of Abner led all of Israel minus Judah to be united to the wrong head, to the wrong person, and to the wrong place. Ishbosheth belongs to the house of Saul. You know, the house whom the Lord has rejected. And, and all who follow him move away from the Lord once again. We see that this has real consequences. Sin leads us to the wrong camp populated with people who hate the Lord. Without God's person, David, the followers of Ishbosheth, they are like the nations. They rage against the Lord and they rage against his anointed. They belong to a house that has fallen. So sin leads us away from God's place. It leads us away from God's people. But I also want you to know that sin leads us away from God's purpose. Sin leads us away from God's purpose. What is God's purpose? Well, here in this context, certainly, God's purpose is for God's people to dwell in God's place under his rule among his people. That's what the kingdom of God is. What's the chief end of man, as we always say? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, sin always and everywhere leads us away from that true purpose. Let me say it again in another way. God's purpose is synonymous with human flourishing. That is what we were created to be. We were not created merely to survive, friends. We were created to flourish. God created us to know him who is the source of all blessing and God is glorified by his people as they know him and as they make him known in this world. As we know his excellencies and praise him for them, as we know his holiness and worship he who is worthy, God is glorified as people acknowledge their constant dependence upon him and rejoice in the knowledge in him. This is simultaneously glorifying God and enjoying him. Didn't we do a series on that not too long ago? In fact, the two go hand in hand, don't they? There is no true glorification of God on the part of mankind apart from enjoying him forever. But sin leads us away. It has to. In its very essence, there's a rejection of the truth of God's character and who he says he is. Sin cannot coexist and does not coexist with a true and deep eternal enjoyment of God. That's why sin must go away, by the way. Like Abner and Ishbosheth in Israel, sin leads us away from God's purpose of fruitfulness, multiplying a true human flourishing. 
It leads us away from the light of God in which we come to see him and see all things as they really are. And it leads us into deeper and deeper darkness. Therefore, finally, sin not only leads us away from God's place, God's purpose, and God's person, but sin leads us away, therefore, from God's peace. That's what we find really in verses 12 through 32. I'm not going to read all of that. Hopefully you're a little bit familiar with the story there, but let me just give you a little warning here. I'm about to take away with my left hand something I just gave you with my right, so try to follow. Hear me. Even though all of Israel is not Israel, as we've just said, in this context we're still talking about the household of God. As we engage this text, what we need to do is just for a moment, set aside what I've said in regards to not all Israel being Israel and take this up as it's presented in this context to God's people. How would they have read this? Israel, as we see them in this text, is a sanctified people, a set-apart people. They have been made through the covenant that God made unlike the nations. That's what God did at the Mount Sinai. They belong to him. The events we read in verses 12 through 32 is taking place in the household of God among God's people. And that's what makes it, by the way, all the more tragic. This is disunity in the family of God. We know according to the law that God's people should dwell in unity, don't we? Leviticus 19 uh, legislates unity by commanding that God's people love their neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19.18. The Psalms, particularly Psalm 133, it declares the blessing of this unity when the psalmist writes, Behold how good and pleasant it is, we sing a song about that, for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edges of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. But what does sin do? It leads us away. It leads us away from God's place, God's people, God's purpose, and it leads us away from God's peace. I want, I want to close with this. Friend, any student of history will tell you that civil war has been and is a nearly constant reality on planet Earth. In fact, there has scarcely been a time in all of history that a people, some people somewhere, have not divided over this and over that. Again, the first event recorded after the fall in the garden was fratricide. A divided family. There will be no lasting peace outside of God's place and God's people fulfilling God's purpose in all the earth. Until that day is consummated, there will be wars and rumors of wars. But hear me. This passage isn't speaking specifically to that. This passage is not primarily addressing the nations. This passage is addressing the household of God. Remember, no government is able to weed out the sin that leads humanity away from the fount of real eternal peace. No laws, no matter how just, will fetter the uncircumcised hearts to God's place and God's people. 
Why? Because sin will lead them away, causing them to reject God's purpose and the peace his purpose entails. But saints, this should not be in the household of God. Hear me, this was first given and read by Israel to be a record of a tragic event that occurred within Israel. Brothers killing brothers. Our passage is horrific because the disunity that's displayed here and demonstrated, it's not in Egypt. It's not in the Philistines. It's not between Egypt and the Philistines, nor Israel and Egypt, but it is among the people of God and the people of God. The loss of purpose and the lack of peace is among God's typological children and his chosen people. And so the warning is not against allowing sin to cause disunity between us and the United States of America. The warning is is not about the church fighting against disunity between us and the nations. Though it certainly might have something to say about that. The warning here is for the household of God. Do not let sin lead you away. The end will be disunity. The forfeiture of the peace that God intends for his people, the blood-bought peace that we've come to know. So friends, can I tell you something? I, I really have avoided, I think for the most part, getting political or picking political stances because of this reason. But I need to tell you, uh, any time uh, that a government implements policy, particularly our government implements policy, that I believe is harmful for the people of the United States, um, I, I am disappointed. I am. But you know what I'm never not? I, I'm not ever surprised. And I'm not ever panicked. You want to know why? Because I recognize that as much as I love this country and, and truly will grieve its downfall if I live to see it, that ultimately the United States of America is an earthly kingdom. And I know because of the scriptures and because of history that every single earthly kingdom will be shaken and fall. I know it to be the case. Now, that doesn't mean I don't grieve it as somebody who loves this country. But let me tell you something. Our political system as it exists right now, particularly the two parties, it thrives on division within the people. It thrives on it. You know why? Because if you hate your other side, you will be more, you'll be less reluctant to give them the power they so desperately want. And and what I'm scared about here, what I'm really surprised at, and and more than even disappointed in our nation and country, is is I'm, I'm disappointed and afraid that we've allowed our political divisions to thrive and infiltrate in the church. Let me answer a quick question for you. I'll make this very simple. Might get some letters, that's okay. Is it sinful to take the vaccine? I've searched the scriptures and I've inquired and I cannot form an argument that says it is sinful to take the vaccine. Is it sinful not to take the vaccine? I've inquired the scriptures and I can't come to a general principle from the scriptures that says it is sinful for you not to take the vaccine. Is it sinful for you to be unloving or hateful toward our brother based on their vaccination status? Absolutely. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, as far as it's concerned with you, be at peace with one another. 
The Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible says, uh, uh, regard one another as more important than yourself. And listen, here's really the problem, guys, is when I say stuff like that, instantly you're thinking, yeah, that's right. The other side should love me as their neighbor. That's right. The other side should do whatever they should do to be at peace with me. Friends, if that's in your heart, no, I'm talking to you. Because that's self-righteousness. And it will kill you and damn you to hell. The reality is we have to do whatever it takes to protect the unity of the church. Because it is by our love for one another that people will know we are his disciples. And here's how you know if sin is disunifying. It's very simple. Hopefully I've laid it out for you. Sin will lead you away from God's people, God's place, God's purpose, and God's peace. Ask yourself in these times where division is thriving in the political realm, whether or not that's what's happening in your heart. And if so, friend, know the grace of God. We are a people who have been shown great grace. We should be the first to display it. And I don't think we know what grace is. I'm tempted to wonder if we know what grace is. Really, I am. Unearned, undeserved favor. That's what it is. It's what you've been shown. Therefore, we must show this to one another. Do not deceive yourself, by the way, into thinking that sin does not continue to have the same effect of 2 Samuel 2 in our lives. That somehow because Christ has accomplished our eternal unity and peace, both between one another and more significantly with God, that therefore sin no longer has any effect on us. The warning is for us. The instructions written here, according to Paul and all of the Old Testament, are given to the church to warn us against the exact same error. And we need to consider that error more carefully, which is what we'll do next week. But for now, friends, oh, you and I, you know what we are? We're fighters for unity. We love each other like a family here. That doesn't mean the family's not going to disagree, but the family knows how to disagree and not separate the bonds of peace that exist with one another. So we will protect and fight for unity here at First Baptist Church of Gray Gables because the mission is at stake. <laughs> Friends, we're, we're called to proclaim the gospel. And, and every time there's inward bickering and fighting, we get distracted from what we're called to do. So thank God for his grace. Thank God for his mercy. And thank God for these people in this church. Let's fight for unity together. Would you stand as we close this morning? Father, Lord, you are good and you're merciful and you're gracious to sinners like us. Father, help us to really understand the kingdom of God, the kingdom that will stand forever. Lord, give us patience and kindness towards one another. Lord, help us to understand the way by which we disagree is important. The way we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit towards one another is important. And Lord, also help us remember that though we will fail often in this, as I have, I know I have, oh, that grace abounds. That Father, you didn't treat us the way we deserve. And because of that, we have righteousness and ability to praise and honor you. Father, protect us from civil war within the household of God. I have no idea what, what the future of this nation holds. 
But I know, Father, what the future of your kingdom holds. I know we will serve and be together for eternity. I know that will be a kingdom that won't be shaken. So help us be about that kingdom. And Lord, certainly, Lord, it's a blessing to live in the longest existing constitutional republic in the history of mankind. It really is. It, it's a joy and a blessing. And, and though there's a, there's a grief there, I think, in my heart and many to, to fear, Lord, that changing. Father, just remind us our hope can't be in this place. It, it can't be. And if we place our hope in this place, then we are going to be pitied. <laughs> Father, our hope is in you. Help us to, to be good citizens. Lord, to, to use the tools at our disposal Lord, to bring about justice and righteousness in your place. Lord, and yet, Father, remind us the mission before us. Remind us of the progress of the gospel. Remind us, Father, that we've got a message and that message can be hurt by the way we love one another. So Lord, strengthen the bonds of peace within this place. Father, we pray if there's anyone here who knows they've had disunity with their brother and sister, just, in, just even if it's a question in their mind of the way they've spoken to somebody or acted to somebody, if it's even a question, they'll go and make that right because they want to fight for unity. Well, that's the evidence of, of, of a true church who loves you. Is, is Lord, even if, if it's not even the case, even if our brother or sister has no idea what they're talking about, that they're making steps to fight and make sure we're united. Thank you for that. We love you, Lord Jesus. Convict our hearts and give us grace, we pray in your name. Amen.